if we take the time to actually listen to people that probably 80 to 90% of the time that I probably wouldn't even need to touch them to figure out what was the matter. If I just let them say what's wrong in their own stories. And actually one of my solo practices was named listening place had nothing about OB-GYN in the title. Hey, this is Achim Novak, executive coach and host of the My Fourth Act podcast. If life is a five-act play, how will you spend your fourth act? I have conversations with exceptional humans who have created bold and unexpected fourth acts. Listen and be inspired. And please rate us and subscribe on whatever platform you are listening on. Let's get started. I am just so delighted to welcome Martina McGowan to the My Fourth Act podcast. Martina is a physician, a mother, a grandmother, a poet, a writer, a public speaker, and an activist in the fight against social, racial, and sexual injustices. Her debut poetry collection, I Am the Rage, subtitled A Black Poetry Collection, is a poetic exploration of living inside injustice. It was released February 2021 by Source Books. Martina first showed up on my social radar as a highly, highly regarded leadership blogger in the small world of leadership thinkers. Welcome, Martina. Well, thank you, Akim. I'm happy to be here. I'm delighted to have you. You're one of those people who I've I'm, been I'm aware of for years, but we've actually never met. So this is a right. perfect excuse to meet you. Back from the Twitter days, we've known each other a long back in the, time. Back in those days. <laughs> Uh, is that your way of saying that we're on a, so the older side of the spectrum right now? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think Twitter was something else when we were in the leadership groups. <laughs> yes. Oh, I know that you're originally from the New York area and you ended up living in Indiana. I'm always curious and ask this question of every guest. When you were a young girl or a teenager growing up, what were your dreams for yourself? Who did you think you wanted to be? Or if mom and dad asked you, making presumption that you have a mom and dad, but what would you tell them? Um, I think I've known that I wanted to go into medicine since about fourth grade. And actually, it's my fourth grade teacher, my first female African-American teacher, first teacher who looked like me, who probably got that all stirred up. Um, before then, uh, I had no idea what I wanted to be before then. Like every other kid, a, a race car driver, who knows what you want to be. Medicine has been on the primary radar for a very long time. Well, so you've had a whole bunch of decades of practicing medicine. Yes. I want to focus more on where you are now, mm-hmm. but I'm really curious. We can tell different versions of our life than different ways to say it. So what I'm curious when it comes to your medicine, I believe you're a gynecologist. Right. If you have to give us, tell us a story of a moment where you go, wow, this is why I love or loved being a doctor. This is a moment that symbolizes of why I chose this profession. But conversely, if there's also a moment where, you know, we all have those where you go, why the hell am I doing this? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe can you take us to both extremes and give us well, a story? For the latter, I think physicians feel many of those latter moments, you know, why the hell am I doing this? You know, plus the, the litigious state that we live in, um, 
makes medicine practice difficult. You know, you spend a lot of time second guessing yourself. Going into medicine, uh, deciding that this is what I'd love to do actually is kind of odd because when I went to medical school, I thought I wanted to be a hematologist, oncologist. And some of that has to do with family history of several cancers, GI cancers primarily. But when I did all my rotations, I found that OB-GYN was the one where I got to do everything. I got to do as much general medicine as, as I could remember, as I could focus on. I got to do general surgery or surgery, which is actually my love for, for GYN. But I knew when I was a student that, that it was what I wanted to do. It was, it was actually a patient that I delivered between rooms. I uh, did my residency and uh, internship at a, a very large public hospital in Houston, and it was one of those days it was really hectic on the ward, and I was still a student, and there were a couple of the techs that had to help me deliver a patient in between rooms because we were so overflowing that day. And it was actually a fresh fetal demise. Uh, it was just me and the techs and the patient and her poor baby who had just died very recently before she came in, and she'd had no medical care. And I'd spent some time talking with her before and after as we were leading up to the delivery. And that's kind of when I knew that this is it. What I'm hearing, I want to test this, is that there is the actual thing that you did, but the mm -hmm. talking before and after was as important as the delivery itself. Is that correct? Absolutely. I feel, and you may have seen me write it once or twice. You know, I think that if we actually spend time and it, it's true for things outside of medicine, but certainly in medicine, if we take the time to actually listen to people that probably 80 to 90% of the time that I probably wouldn't even need to touch them to figure out what was the matter. If I just let them say what's wrong in their own stories. And actually one of my solo practices was named listening place had nothing about OBGYN in the title, because I think that's the most important thing that we do in medicine is listen. Although we don't all listen. I've lived with HIV since the late eighties and I've been healthy mm -hmm. the entire time and I've been blessed. I've seen just so many different doctors on that journey and I'm grateful sure. for them, but to just, to support what you were saying, I remember an osteopath in Manhattan who the best analogy is, I know she was there to take care of me, but it was two human beings, you know, being in a room, being real with each other. Right. Her ability to do that was part of the healing. I have no doubt. Oh, I, I, obviously, I absolutely agree with you on that. <laughs> no yeah. doubt. So now take us to the dark side. You said, oh, many doctors know that. And uh, this is not necessarily to tell war stories. But take the question in this sense, because maybe it's a question about resilience, because a lot of us have to face a lot of different levels of crap. Mm -hmm. The job we need to do. And we persevere and we do it anyway. You know, the fine line about what we're willing to put up with or not is an interesting conversation. But well, what were some moments where you went, gosh, why am I doing this? <laughs> probably most of those situations were probably actually related to the book and the kind of stuff that I write there were confrontations that, that had nothing to do with actual medicine or my skill or, or my talent or my knowledge, but was just purely racist, purely evil, you know, when, when patients would just go off to the deep end or, or decide that they, they couldn't see me, you know, they'd make the appointment, whoever, and, and obviously my name is sort of Scottish, so they wouldn't know till they got there that I was black. So that has happened to me several times. And even a few patients 
afterwards, not happy with their surgery, not that there was anything wrong with the surgery, would feel that they had the right, they're called Karens now, but would feel that they have the right to take whatever anger they have out on the staff or the physician. So yeah, there's, there's that dark side of medicine. So when those things happen, and obviously I mentioned you, my partner is African-American. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, that's discussed in my household all the time. Mm-hmm. And he's phenomenally successful, but it doesn't matter in those situations, right? Right. Uh, so how do you, how do you inside of yourself um, manage that, work through it? How do you handle your rage about what happened? <laughs> well, sometimes you can confront it, hopefully not quite in a rage that they're in, but sometimes you can confront it. Now, not that you're actually putting anybody in their place or anything like that, because you, you know in your heart that, that a large number of people feel this way about you. It has nothing to do with you. And I write. I've been writing for a long time about leadership and personal development and those kinds of things. And all of those bitter things sneak into the writing as well. Yeah. yeah. Thank you for that segue to, to the writing. I, I think in my own professional life, I... I have, I'm an executive coach and, and I get to coach a lot of physicians who work in the healthcare industry. So, uh, and some occasionally confess to me that I, I wanted, I wish I could just chuck this all and just, be a writer <laughs> and just yeah. be, there just be a writer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the two parts to this is number one, we have to notice the desire to write. Right. And I think we have to give ourselves permission to write. And also, I think, feel that we have something to say, right? How did you work that all out for yourself? I'm curious. My career was winding down about the time the pandemic really was starting to take off. And that's how I ended up in Indianapolis. And I have a blog I've written probably for the last 10 years. And I've done some personal journaling. One of the things that I did was um, I took class. I knew the instructor fairly well, but not the other people in the group. Mm-hmm. And it was just poetry. And it just happened to be poetry. It could have been anything. And we were encouraged to write, to prompt, encouraged to read. I am a card-carrying introvert, so I didn't read for most of the sessions. You know, I would write privately what I had. And towards the end, and I think in addition to what you said earlier, part of it's giving yourself, yes, permission to write, but you have to have permission to share once you've decided that you have something to say. That's a difficult step, I think, even for people who've been writing as much longer than I am. You know, yeah, it's good enough for me. It's good enough for my family. But is, is it good enough for someone who doesn't live inside my head? I shared. And actually, that first poem that I share with them was the basis of the, the anchor poem for the book, I Am the Rage. We kept writing, we kept reading. I took, I've been taking more classes, more workshops. I haven't written anything really essay-like outside of the blog since high school, which is a very, very long time ago. So I'm spending a lot of the time now sort of backfilling that knowledge, learning about forms and structure and, and those kinds of things. Yeah. Most of what I write isn't, most of what I've written for the book is free verse. I think you need to learn those things, yeah. even if you don't choose to do them. I just want to really celebrate I'm going to spell out something you just said, but for mm-hmm. our listeners who may all think, oh, I, yeah, I'd like to do some writing. It's, I, I celebrate you for taking classes. You know, In the 90s, when I decided to be a writer, I was blessed to live in New York. I had access to amazing teachers. And being in a class actually made me feel like, oh, I am a writer, perhaps. Yeah. And it forced me to read it out loud. 
you know, as you were describing, which is I'm communicating a part of myself to others and I can see how it lands. How beautiful right. is that? When you started writing poetry, and it's called I Am the Rage, it's called a Black Poetry Collection. So I think there's no ambiguity on the surface about what you're writing about. Did you know how deep you were going to go with the stuff or was it just sort of emerging one poem at a time and suddenly it was a collection or uh, how did it all come together? It started one poem at a time, even before the book <laughs> became a question or an issue. And it was one poem at a time. Then you know, you're a writer yourself and you go deeper and said, well, you know, and other things and things start to come up. Yes, it is a black poetry collection, but I don't think it's just for Black people. I think it's about people who are oppressed in general, people who feel othered, I think is, is more of a theme. But yeah, it, it sort of coalesced. Uh, this One of the people that I took the workshop with asked, people always ask if you want to do stuff, uh, asked if I was interested in publishing, you know, and we all say, sure, you know, whatever. <laughs> and she actually knew someone. But yeah, that was a point when I was writing almost every day. And and not all of those poems were, were necessarily race-related. But but yeah, I started pull, pulling on heartstrings and, and memories and feelings that I may not have explored well myself in the past. Yeah. I want to read part of a poem that is one of yours. And it, it perfectly illustrates what you just said, because on, on one level, I think it is about the Black-Brown experience. <laughs> And on the other level, it's about the human experience. Right. And it's, part of a, it's just a section of a poem called Human Enough. It says, with diminishing confidence, we send out our heart sensors to try to remember where our children are supposed to be. And at the same time, to touch the God that binds us to each other. The God that binds us to each other tries to break that awkward silence now filling our homes as we review our day's journey and begin to wonder where our children truly are and if they will return. Uh, it struck me, obviously, because we're recording this after the massacre in a school in Texas. Any other it's a beautiful poem. There's a lot more. I'm just giving you a little glimpse. Anything you'd like to add about what prompted you to write this or any personal experience that call this forth or any of the choices you made in the writing? A lot of this was written in 2020 and it was around the time with the stuff with George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and several other losses no, combined with that and my own children and how unsafe and anxious I feel whenever, and my children are adults and I have grandchildren, you know, but how anxious I feel, even when my 40-year-old daughter goes off by herself, you know, I still have that anxiety. And, and especially with the increase in gun violence we've had recently, you know, you, you never know. I mean, not that you ever knew before. I mean, there are car wrecks and, and all that other stuff, but, you know, with the... Um, proliferation of uh, assault weapons just cropping up everywhere. It, it just makes you anxious yeah. and prayerful. A word from your sponsor. 
that's me. I invite you to go to the website associated with this podcast, www.myfourthact.com. You will find other equally inspiring conversation with great humans. And you will also learn more about the My Fourth Act Mastermind Groups, where cool people figure out how to chart their own fourth acts. Please check it out. And now back to the conversation. I appreciate you using the word prayerful. I'm also curious. There are so many things in the world uh, that it's easy to become enraged about. Mm -hmm. Um, So besides writing and besides praying, how else do you channel your rage? (laughs) I do some mentoring in the school system here to try to help other people write, other kids write. I don't know if it's a good channel or not. I do examinations on sexually assaulted children because there aren't many docs who do that uh, to testify for the prosecutor's office. But again, because they are bereft for the most part of, of medical help and support, I feel compelled to help them. So no, I, a lot of it's just, just writing and, and casting about for what to do next. Did you say casting about a word? <laughs> yes. Only a writer would use that word. Martina. Uh, so I. Well, the vocabulary came before I started sharing. <laughs> but since this is the My Fourth Act podcast, you know, the mm-hmm. fourth act is it's of a metaphor based on the five act play in the fourth act, which is, I think, based on your, your age and my age. We're both mm-hmm. in the fourth act. We're not ready to die, but we've accomplished a lot of stuff. So we have the time to do lots of casting about. So how do you cast about? I paint. I do some drawing. And I have a short list of other things I'd still like to learn to do, like like learn to play piano and those kinds of things. I spend some time at the gym trying to keep my <laughs> physical and psychological health yes. um, going. But yeah, yes. just every now and then I'll, I'll see a class that seems interesting as well. I can try that. You know, worst worst case scenario is I can't do it well. Yeah. Because I think we're all Renaissance people, and I have always felt that way. It's just a, a for me. I think it's a matter of time or money or exposure. And so, yeah, even though we're in, we're approaching our final acts. There's still so much more I can be exposed to and expose my children and grandchildren to. I, in a lot of so the public commentary about you you identify as a lifelong learner which is a Mm -hmm. wonderful thing Uh, and I think one of the gifts of being at our age is that we we have more time to actually pursue things than we had before when we were perhaps locked into more traditional life schedules and narratives right correct agreed I read part of one of your poems, Mm -hmm. but I'd I'd love for you to read one poem, any poem of your choice, and just be prepared for me to ask you some questions afterwards, okay? (laughs) (laughs) Just warning you ahead of time. Let's see. There is too little time to teach our children that there is no after to this ubiquitous feeling that life is but a stream trailing from our bodies, almost unseen. 
There is too little time to spoon feed our children, giving them false hope and hype while trying to convince ourselves that the world is full of wonder and fair, although it will not be offered to them. There is too little time to teach them to say I to all that life has to offer and to ever every passing whim, knowing they cannot hold it freely. There is too little time to teach our children to fight to keep their spirits alive, the often insignificance of a hope for tomorrow, to manage the lies of apostles and apostates alike, the sweetness of youth, the tiny moments that make life beautiful, the defiance built into their very DNA. There is too little time to allow our children to be children. Mm. Thank you. That's a very bittersweet poem. But what I loved about it within, and I, for the listeners, I'm hearing it for the first time, but, but what I love within the poem, there's a possibility of everything we would love to do if we had more time, right? And used it wisely. <laughs> used it wisely, right? If, if you would channel for a moment your, your elder wisdom, and, <laughs> and if you had a magic wand, how? And even if it's just within our smaller orbits and not the entire world, mm-hmm. but how do we start to find a little more time for the things that you painted as the beautiful possibilities in your poem? How do we find it? Well, we have to make different choices, you know, and I think for many of us early in our careers, our choices, we're told that our choice is narrow, you know, that there's work and work is the center of life. Uh, work is what keeps your family going. It buys your house, buys your boat, whatever it is you think you need to have. The poor little lives who are dependent upon us, you know, don't necessarily reap the benefits of that. I think it's about teaching professionals in particular, you know, and, and that would be your job as a coach, you know, that there are choices. You know, everything is a choice. You know, if, if you choose not to spend the afternoon with your kid and decide to go take an extra class, it's a choice, you know, and accept that. Now, the children will grow up with or, with or without us. We're, we're just here, hopefully, to be decent guides along the way. And they learn from every choice that we make. What I heard earlier, I heard an inscription of the, your own explorations the possibility of personal expansion, mm-hmm. even as the world around us can often feel very dark. Right. How do you reconcile that tension for yourself? Uh, not always easily. Um, yeah. the, the world is dark and, and it makes, makes us all, all of us, I think, it makes us all feel helpless. So some of it's writing, uh, more of it, you know, now that I'm retired, is, is spending time with my children and my grandchildren, doing a lot of the things I didn't do with my kids. You know, we uh-huh. spend time reading, spend time playing games, just, just spend time being silly. But I'm able to do that now. I probably could have done it more then. So you have to get, get past that guilt. Uh, yeah, I should have done it a little bit differently then. And, and that's why that's why I think grandchildren tend to be more spoiled or their parents perceive they're more spoiled. You know, because you're you're a different person now than, than you were 20 years ago. Well, and I also think you described something that is 
a truly global thing. I remember I, I was born in Germany. We lived in foreign countries. But boy, going home once a year to visit my mother's mother, my grandmother, who just worshipped me. And boy, mm-hmm. did we have fun. And she was so much more fun than my mother. <laughs> she seemed much more adventurous, you know, and she oozed love, you know. And my mother was, my mother, who I adore, was busy trying to be a good mother. You know, she was. <laughs> she was an amazing mother. But my grandmother just oozed love. And that was a beautiful thing. You know? Right. And that's part of what grandparents are for. That's know? right. And I'm sure your mother had her own bit of jealousy about, well, this is not the mother. And my daughter says, this is not the mother I grew up with. <laughs> Again, this is a question I love to ask every guest. If based on what you know now about life, mm-hmm. if you had the chance to whisper some words of wisdom into young Martina's ear, not to change her choices mm-hmm. in life, not to rewrite her story, that's not the point, but what is something that you have learned that, that you would like her to know? I think probably most of us send, send the same message back. Have more fun while you're doing it. <laughs> yeah. Enjoy the journey, you know, which you can say now, but yeah, you know, have a little more fun. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Not reckless, just fun. <laughs> <laughs> that was the mother coming out for a moment there. That's that's right. <laughs> also, this question is for our listeners mm-hmm. because you so beautifully described how you began to explore writing poetry. And you also talked about how you're already exploring or might in the future want to explore other creative interests and expressions. Right. Uh, And it's easy to feel like, well, yeah, I I have those same desires, but I don't know where to start or I don't know how to do that. Or what kind of guidance would you offer somebody who maybe has part, creative parts of themselves they want to express, but are fearful of taking the first step? Well, I think the first step, you know, once you decide that you're going to do it, the first step is easy. You know, that's why they make libraries and we can buy books and those, is, and those kinds of things, is, you know, do a little research on your own. You know, if it's drawing, for instance, you know, certainly you can buy some drawing books and, and something along those lines, but there are always, you know, local groups around, that you can join. They don't usually cost very much. There's not usually a great deal of pressure in terms of um, you know, doing them. And in fact, I'm starting a, a writing class, a, a drawing class next week. And I haven't done a formal drawing class in forever, even though I paint. But yeah, just start low key. You know, don't think you're going to be Picasso or you're going to be Shakespeare. You know, the first time out of the gate, I think that's a mistake that, that most of us make. You know, there's so little time left that, that I need to be yeah. really good at this. Who cares if you're really good at it? You know, take your time and, and, and enjoy it. You know, all, those, all those things we skipped before and trying to, you know, to learn to play guitar or whatever it is we're trying to learn. You know, yeah. don't skip it this time. Don't skip it this time. Is such wonderful advice. <laughs> Thank you. Let's, let's end the conversation on this note. I'm sure our listeners want to find out more about where they can learn, find your book or learn more about your work, where, where would you like to direct them, Martina? The book is available everywhere on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, any of those yeah, the places. The title is I Am The Rage. 
right? I have a blog, MontinaMcGowan.com, like I said, where I talk about leadership and personal development. And I'm on Facebook. I'm on Twitter. I don't spend as much time there, but I can be found on Facebook. Martina McGowan, MD, um, is the writer's page. I'm everywhere. <laughs> you truly are. And let me just make one more plug for listeners. If you go to martinamcgowan.com uh, and your, your leadership blogging, Mm-hmm. Uh, as I read a few things before we recorded this, and it's it's inspirational, but it's also very much about shifting your mind if you're getting in your own way. Like, how do you shift your thinking to give yourself permission to do stuff that possibly your heart desires, but your head is telling you not to do? Right. And, and it's full of also practical advice. It's a gorgeous okay. blog. So I invite you all to go to martinamcgowan.com. And I hope the the small tastes of I Am the Rage uh, have what your appetite and that you would like to read more. Uh, Thank thank you you. so much, Martina. Thank you very much, Akin. It was a pleasure. Like what you heard? Please go to myfourthact.com and subscribe to receive my updates on upcoming episodes Please also subscribe to us on the platform of your choice. Rate us, give us a review, and let us all create some magical fourth acts together. Ciao.